Welcome back to Golden Harvest, We're All Ears, a podcast mini-series airing throughout this 2021 harvest season. My name is Kara Hart, and I'll be your host all season, so start getting used to my voice. Our first episode was a review of the 2021 season, and it was a lot of fun. This week, we're going to discuss how this whirlwind of a year changed U.S. agriculture markets, policies, and trade. Today, I'm joined by two special guests from Syngenta, Mary Kay Thatcher and Wade Wiley, to talk about the latest agricultural updates from Washington, D.C., and how these will impact Harvest 2021 and beyond. It's great to have you. This is We're All Ears. Thanks for joining us, Mary Kay and Wade. Would you mind introducing yourselves, telling us a little bit about your background in the agriculture industry? We'll start with Wade. Sure, Kara. My name's Wade Wiley. I'm the head of pricing and channel strategy for Syngenta Seeds. Uh, tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up on a small farm in the southeast part of Indiana. Uh, that doesn't make me a Hoosier because I'm a boiler maker. Uh, but uh, throughout my career, I've worked on a large hog farm after I graduated from college. Worked with, with an ag retail uh, for five years. I owned my own business back in 96 to 2001. It was precision agriculture. Uh, we did a lot of yield mapping and soil sampling. In 2001, I joined the seed industry, uh, worked as a genetic supplier. And then in 2010, I worked for another seed brand up until last year when I joined Syngenta Seeds. Thanks, Karen. So um, my my uh, background isn't as good as Wade's. Right after college, I thought I'd come to Washington for two years and go back home to Iowa, and I, I never made it. So I've been working uh, on Capitol Hill and in one of the administrations, um, lobbied for the American Farm Bureau for 31 years, and then came to Syngenta about three and a half years ago. For those of you that are just meeting the folks that we are visiting with today, uh, Mary Kay Thatcher is like the guru for all things policy. So uh, I know we're going to have a great conversation today. Let's get right into it. What can you tell us, Wade, about the current state of the corn and soybean markets? Well, Kara, it's always fun to talk about corn and soybean markets when the markets are great, right? You know, at the time we're recording this podcast, corn is in that $5 range and beans are in that $12 range. Uh, Who would have guessed that a year ago that we we would be talking about strong markets back in the early part of uh, 2020? But since August of uh, 2020, uh, it's been a bull market and it's been a lot of fun. Um, Farmers are pretty optimistic about their net farm income. Um, A lot of times I look at the Purdue Ag Economy barometer and uh, last month it increased. And the reason why the sentiment is is, uh, increasing is because the optimism for the net farm income by farmers. Uh, But also farmers are concerned um, on several fronts. One is rising input cost, uh, but On the other side, you got low interest rates and along with the strong prices, uh, the contribution margins for farmers are really, really good. A lot of income was driven in 2020 from government payments and in 21 is coming from these strong prices. There's some challenges that are out there within the marketplace and uh, shortages of of products uh, with supply. Uh, It's not all related to COVID. Uh, We had a hurricane um, back in August. And and when you start to think about 
the nitrogen prices far as this next year. You know, we had some plants that are shut down. Uh, some of them are shut down due to the hurricane. Some of them are closing up a little bit for the uh, high natural gas prices. And so when you take a look for farmers, um, you can probably guess maybe about 15 more cents per pound of end for as within our costs for 21 versus 20. So that's going to drive maybe some different behavior um, as far as when farmers think about what crops that they might plant in uh, 2022. Does that mean we could potentially see more of one over the other when we talk about corn and soybeans? Possibly. You know, if nitrogen prices stay high, uh, farmers might be thinking about more beans. Uh, well, with the uh, the great income, uh, farmers are also going to be thinking about where they can spend some money um, by the end by the end of the year. And uh, there's some challenges there, too. Uh, you know, if you can't get products like tractors and combines, because maybe there's a, a shortage on chips or rubber or still or plastic for the ag manufacturers, um, it's, it's going to be a challenge to see where farmers might want to spend their money. And, you know, I think, Wade, to add to that, certainly one of the ways that we make sure we have good farm income is to have really good exports. And uh, we're, we're projected by USDA to have the best export year we've ever had. Uh, certainly China is a big part of that. And I know we probably spent a whole lot more time in 2020 talking about China and the fact that it didn't look like they were going to make their phase one trade agreement uh, commitments than we have this year. But things are for the for agriculture in the China phase one are going really well. Um, we don't have numbers yet for the end of July, but as of the end of June, we were 90 percent at where we should be in those exports to China. And you know, when you got $5 corn and $12 beans, it's a whole lot easier to make that commitment than it is when prices are low. But uh, things look good besides um, besides continuing to have really good soybean exports to China. We're going to have high, the highest ever corn exports to that country and the highest ever wheat exports. And certainly, you know, they've had some falling stocks. And so that has made a difference. And the fact they had African swine fever and they're trying to rebuild their pork market. So um, it's all good. But, you know, to put a little bit of perspective, last year, I think we exported slightly above 27 billion to China. And that was a record. And we're going to be awfully close to 40 billion this year. So that is pretty darned amazing. Thanks for adding that in, Mary Kay. Those are really great things to think about. Actually leads into where I was hoping we could talk about next. Uh, in We know in last week's episode, we talked about the 2021 growing season, what kind of corn and soybean harvest Midwestern farmers can be expecting. And based on harvest expectations and international demand, Wade, I wondered, what would you say that we're currently in? Are we in a supply market or a demand market when it comes to the corn and soybeans? Well, Kara, I really believe we're in a demand market, uh, but first let's talk about supply. Uh, so it's just to start, uh, farmers are rolling now. I think we're about 10% completed at harvest uh, within some states and uh, the further southern states are maybe about two thirds the way through. So we're getting in some reports and uh, just talked to a farmer this afternoon and his report was, I'm uh, uh pretty excited about my soybeans. I'm, they're yielding better than what I expected, but my corn is yielding less than what I expected. I'm starting to maybe hear that as a theme. Um, one of the things that I think about 
that we have such high expectations for corn and low expectations for beans that farmers are getting surprised. There's a lot of variations this year. You know, it's been dry within the west, up in the north, and we've had a lot of rain far as with, within the east. Uh, but when you think about in Indiana, in some places, we had a long stretch of some dry weather that probably took the top end off some of this corn. Um, when you look in Illinois and some other places, there's a disease called tar spot that's taken some top end off as well. But the USDA came out with their WASDA report in September, and they raised the expectations for corn yield up to 176.3. So the USDA is uh, thinking positive about corn. There's been 23 times since 1970 that the USDA has raised the yield expectations from August going into September. In 17 of that 23 times, the final number increased for corn versus the September report. So we're in a situation now, I guess that's three quarters of the odds that maybe that yield number could go higher. Uh, there's some modeling out there that suggests it could be 100, 178, but uh, you, you know yields are really hard to determine, and the uh, combines don't lie. On the soy, soybean side, um, the USDA raised their number in the September report to 50.6 bushels per acre. That's up six tenths from the August report. Uh, but there's been 26 times in, during that same time period in, in 1970 where the USDA has raised the August number up uh, higher in the September report, um, but it's kind of a flip of a coin. 54% of that time, the uh, final number for soybeans in January was higher than the September number, and 12 times it was lower. So it's going to be really hard to tell. But the yields so far have been good. I, I think farmers are, are uh, pleased. But getting into your question, you know, I believe it's a demand market. Uh, the corn to soybean ratio has been low, and it really supports the current prices. And one could argue that prices maybe should be higher with the uh, corn to stocks ratio number. But we need to see the export sales materialize at the pace that the USDA has booked within our balance sheet. And when it comes to corn, Mexico and Japan are, are our buyers, right? Those are very important customers. And for that reason, you know, I believe we're in a demand market because we're waiting to see some of those exports really materialize within sales. Some people talk about we need a ration demand, uh, but it's hard to want a ration demand until you see the export sales come through. We also got some several threats far as on the, the uh, demand side. Uh, African swine fever was just confirmed in the country of Haiti, and that's getting closer to the U.S. And so we need to keep that out. That's very important uh, for our pork farmers and also our grain farmers. And there's talk about ethanol, some changes uh, with the um, the uh, mandates and, uh, you know, the ethanol is very important to the ag community and very important to farmers. And so we need to encourage our friends in D.C. Uh, not to lower those mandates. Well, thanks, Wade. And that segues into possibly diving into farm policy here. Let's switch gears to Washington, D.C., we welcomed a new president to the White House in 2021. And along with that came new leaders. 
We have a new administrator of the EPA, Michael Regan. Mary Kay, what can you tell us about EPA Administrator Regan uh, and what he's done so far as head of this agency? Well, I think he's certainly been open to agriculture's viewpoint, which isn't always true when you get an EPA administrator. So we appreciate that. Um, I, I think we have some concerns probably on the top of farmers' minds as waters of the U.S. or the new uh, navigable water protection rule. And uh, we do know that EPA is going to roll that back. I think he's been very clear. He's not going to take it clear back to waters of the U.S. He, he understands that farmers and ranchers need some certainty. They need transparency. Uh, so I suspect we'll be somewhere in the middle of between WOTUS and the National, uh, the Navigable Waters Protection Act when we get that all through. I think he also sees the importance of, you know, hurrying up and getting it done. And, you know, he talks about wanting to have it be durable so that it withstands whatever administration comes in next and whatever the courts say. And boy, I hope he can do that. That's a that's a pretty lofty goal, but that would be wonderful. Um, on ethanol, I think he's been less of a friend to agriculture. Um, certainly everything that's gone wrong in the ethanol industry lately can't be attributed to EPA because the courts haven't necessarily been friendly to us either. Um, but we've heard some rumblings in the last few days about him actually lowering the renewable volume obligations for 2019, for 2020, 2021. Uh, that's that's a huge deal. Uh, we have not made as much progress in getting them to overturn some of the small refinery exemptions. And if I just look at four years, Kara, you're talking about giving up uh, corn produced for ethanol at the same rate of how much corn you have in the state of Minnesota. So it's a it's a big, big deal. And then I would say, you know, last but not least, we got questions out there about pesticides. We've seen chlorpyrifos is going to go. Um, to the wayside. There's been a lot of discussions about um, glyphosate. And we know that we continue to have major problems with the Endangered Species Act and how it overlaps uh, with pesticide registrations. And so that's something we're going to have to spend a lot of time on. We're going to have to make sure that we don't lose some very valuable pesticides in this country. Mary Kay, circling back to some of what we just talked about here happening at the EPA, that Wanderers of the United States rule rewriting that's happening right now, what's the timeline, do you know, to have something in place? I think we'll start seeing something later this fall, say November, et cetera, and then we'll see another iteration probably next year. You know, they did they did go out and they had comments on what was happening. Uh, again, I think uh, this administrator has been very fair about meeting with and his people meeting with both sides on this issue. Um, so I think I think we'll see something later this year, still before uh, December and then something else next spring, hopefully. Well, and while these new leads of of these agencies are really important to the policy that happens, uh, you know, within the administration, also their supporters, their team that they have working behind them too. Mary Kay, it sounds like the EPA still has a few key people that need to be named that would maybe have a little bit more influence on some of these key policy measures we just talked about. Well, they do. And EPA isn't the only one. You know, Kara, there's about 4,000 people, first of all, that are political appointees throughout the government that get changed every time a new president comes in. But there's about 750 or 800 of them that are really key people. People you think of like the Undersecretary for Research at USDA or the USTR Ag Trade Rep, et cetera. And you know, this administration only has 131 of those 750 or 800 of them confirmed. 
So uh, a lot hasn't happened because those folks aren't in line and you get a lot of career staff. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to raise their head too high and do anything controversial because when a new political comes on board, they want to still have a job. So there's a couple of positions that are really key that I think uh, would be important to fill. One of them is um, Elaine Trevino was just named within the last 10 days or so as the new um, ag ambassador at the U.S. Trade Representative Office. And that's great. Uh, we certainly needed somebody over there focusing on ag, um, if not for new trade agreements, certainly for enforcement of current ones, problems like we're having in Mexico, et cetera. And then troubling is we still don't have anyone named as the undersecretary for trade and foreign ag over at USDA. So you get that one-two punch going and you can make a real difference. So hopefully both of those will happen really soon. But there's a lot of people just not at home. And then, of course, you have COVID and you know, the federal government's still pretty much closed. I bet if you went to USDA on any given day, you'd find maybe 30 political appointees there and not a single career person out of the thousands that work there. It's definitely a lot to take in. Uh, and I think patience definitely uh, needed as that administration fills those remaining positions for sure. Then I wondered, Mary Kay, uh, you know, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack is one at USDA that a lot of people in agriculture welcomed back because he was a familiar face, but he is really knowledgeable in all sorts of ag policy. And I wondered with some of the challenges we're seeing at the EPA, um, you know, would there be any way for Vilsack to be involved in any of that? Do you think he is involved in any of that? You know, encouraging the EPA to think positively on, on biofuels, for example. Oh, I think absolutely. Having Tom Vilsack back is a is a real uh, plus to the ag industry. You know, eight years of serving in that position before and then with the Dairy Export Council so that he really did see up close some of the trade problems and he knows how to address those. That's a great thing. But I think he plays early and often, whether we're talking about things like FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act and pesticide usage and endangered species. He's been very helpful to farmers trying to work with EPA there. He talks frequently about trade issues over at USTR. He's talked about uh, uh, certainly probably more than anything else, ethanol at EPA. So he's definitely got farmers backs and I think working on this, but Again, you got, I think, four political appointees uh, in the secretarial level, i.e. the undersecretary, the secretary, the deputy secretary, those out of like 16 people over there. It's just incredible. They, you know, one person can only do so much. Absolutely. And we know another topic on many farmers' minds is succession planning, the process of passing down the family farm to a new generation. Wade, tell us, what implications do you think these recent ag policies have on farmers and ranchers? Yeah, Kara, you know, uh, farmers and growing up on a family farm, I'm very passionate about farms staying within families. And uh, a lot of people outside of agriculture think about farms as corporations. Uh, but within agriculture, the vast majority of farms are family farms that just happen to be corporations. I always like to say, though, the death of a family farm is a result of not having a succession plan. So it's really on to ourselves 
as farmers to make sure that we have succession plans. There was uh, some ag policy that's being talked about within this new tax bill uh, that both sides of the aisle came together to get it removed so far. Uh, we haven't quite seen the, the final tax bill yet, but it's a stepped up basis. And that's a, a huge victory for farmers and all small businesses that are family owned across the U.S. And, you know, Wade, that's exactly right. I mean, and were it not for farmers and ranchers being really vocal about those topics, I think they very well could still be in that three and a half trillion dollar package. But we did we did miss the bullet on both stepped up basis. And there was a lot of talk about the loss of in-kind exchanges, which would have been difficult. But there are still things in that tax bill that are troubling the Section 2032 uh, use valuation where you can get your land valued at the uh, the value that you farm it at versus the value that somebody from the local urban community might pay for it is important, but that's also limited. It's limited to uh, uh, to only your offspring. So you know, it's not like okay, I can give it to a cousin. There's a lot of there's a lot of problems in there, and and there is a capital gains tax increase from twenty to twenty five percent. And and I think we are out of the woods, but I would tell you I'm concerned in that Ron Wyden, who is the chairman of the uh, Senate Finance Committee, the, the committee that's responsible for these taxes, has said, hey, I might want to put in a new kind of tax exchange where they we pay the capital gains tax every year regardless. Th those, those harmful things are still out there, so farmers can't sit back on their laurels quite yet. But the other thing that I would make sure that people uh, think about is that there isn't a chance period, that $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill uh, for human infrastructure is going to pass. Joe Manchin has already said he'd only do $1.5 trillion. So what happens is there's less assistance that goes out when you go from 3 to 1.5, and but that also means fewer tax increases have to take place. Sounds like there are a lot of unknowns here as we continue in October and, and move move along, and it'll be interesting to continue to watch what happens in that arena. And you know, you know, Kara, it may be the end of the year that some people are talking about, let's push the debt limit off till December 3rd. Well, that just means they're going to be here. You know, we know they'll get it done then because when it comes close to Christmas, they want to go home and be with their families. But it could mean that we hassle with these uh, budget issues the next three months of the year. We've seen some pretty interesting things happen in December. Farm bills have been made and signed in December. There's December could be a pretty magic month. I can remember working on a farm bill on December 23rd and wondering if I was ever going to get to go home. Well, I'm eager to see how this conversation continues. Thank you for that answer. And finally, let's transition here to a topic that's been widely discussed in Washington, D.C. and, of course, across the Midwest this year, dicamba. What's the latest, Mary Kay, in terms of dicamba policy? Well, just a, very, very recently, we had good news out of uh, EPA Administrator Regan, who said that, you know, farmers are going to be able to use dicamba in 2022. And I think that was very much up in the air. You know, there were a lot of new rules that were put in place for use this year, bigger buffer strips, uh, earlier cutoff dates, less ability to get Section 24C exclusions, et cetera. Uh, there were still, unfortunately, some um, complaints that came in. You know, you look especially at a state like Arkansas, quite a few complaints. So no doubt EPA is still looking really, really hard at dicamba. And while I think it's, uh, a, it's a sure bet from what the administrator said the other day of use for 2022, I think it's far from sure after that. 
What do farmers need to know now as they look at making those kinds of product purchases for next year? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I'm not hearing anything as of today about changes in labeling or any of those kinds of things. I think they could come about. I know there's going to continue to be pushes on that, but I haven't heard any specifics whatsoever. Thank you. And Wade, did you have anything you wanted to add on, on marketing? Is there anything else you'd like to say as we wrap this conversation up? Well, I, I think that that Canva issue out within the countryside is very emotional, right? There's uh, uh, choices are very important for farmers and the U.S. farmers need need choices. Um, but they also want to be good neighbors and, uh, and, and great stewards. And um, when you take a look at the Dicamba situation, it's been a hot topic for several years, but the farmer needs some certainty uh, for us going into next season. Um, you know, the sales season has kicked off and, um, you know, without a product, which I don't think will happen, uh, but with the label changes, the farmers need to know what the EPA is thinking uh, so they can make their decisions for uh, 2022. Wade and Mary Kay, thank you so much for joining me on this very informative conversation on Golden Harvest. We're All Ears podcast. We'll release new episodes every week through November. Watch out for our third episode where we'll take a look at the corn and soybean production in South America. We'll also hear from a climatologist about the 2022 season weather outlook. You won't want to miss it. So subscribe to We're All Ears on your preferred podcast streaming platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And remember, just like you're listening, we're listening too. So join in the conversation and interact with us at Golden Harvest on Facebook and Twitter or Golden Harvest Seeds on Instagram to tell us how you liked this episode. Thanks for listening to We're All Ears. Join us next week for episode three. Always read and follow label and bag tag instructions.